0: um the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations a lot
2: of these were sponsored by the church
0: what does it mean to say that the christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there um you're always uh being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects
1: welcome to the magnificast the podcast about christianity and leftist politics i'm dean detloff i'm a phd student at the institute for christian studies in toronto
0: And I'm Matt Bernko. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. This week we are talking to
1: Damian Costello, who's the author of a book called Black Elk Colonialism and Lakota Catholicism from Orbis Books. Uh, And really excited to learn a little bit more about that. Um, Make sure to listen to the past episode. We're going to say that a bunch of other times uh, (laughs) during the next conversation. Uh, But make sure to listen to the past episode where Damian interviews Basil Braveheart. Uh, It's a good kind of context setting um, episode i think for this one but before we do that matt i hear that we have two itunes reviews
0: yep we got two um all right so this is a little bit different than our usual itunes uh rating segment in that we've gotten our first one-star review
1: um, so i'm very excited about it
0: <laughs> so uh since i mean i usually we wouldn't probably read bad reviews at all but if it's the first one star we got to take that criticism you know no i'd read them can't just ignore it we gotta you gotta be fair and balanced exactly so here's the balance here no spin no spin zone uh okay this review is entitled terrible one out of five stars (laughs) uh
1: referring to the review though
0: yeah it's they're saying that their own review will be is terrible uh okay so this user writes, they frown on evangelization and can't really talk about theology or the Bible. True. All true. <laughs> Not going to dispute that. Marxism, though, they are really passionate about Marxism. Also true. <laughs> again, this is only the obvious. They are very dismissive of the strong currents of atheism and opposition to Christianity within the Marxist tradition. False? We did uh, yeah. kind of a few episodes about that, actually.
1: Yeah, I agree. That's a that's just so like unfair, the for selective listening.
0: Yeah, I think so. Like, the whole episode on Lenin was about that. Yeah, or the Whatever. Bakunin one. Yeah, that's true. Dang, man. good. We're good at this. Yeah. Okay, and then uh, <laughs> they conclude their review saying, I really wish there was a, p- a good podcast about leftist politics and Christianity, but I'm still looking for one. And honestly, me too. I wish there was a good podcast about <laughs> leftist politics <laughs> and Christianity. And uh, I hope if that person if that person has listened to this episode, which they probably haven't, if you ever find one, please tell us what it is. Um okay so there's our one star review uh partly accurate uh one bit of selective listening but fine should have should have, been, should have at least
1: them. been two stars that's how i feel about it
0: Yeah i think so too I mean if there's 80 episodes like it's it's a lot of time even <laughs> Yeah it's like Just 3 com- 3 whole days of your life Good god it's bad uh, sorry i won't say good god cuz we don't talk about the bible or theology <laughs> Um <laughs> Uh, okay, another person writes, uh, sort of, uh, maybe this is the, this is the pick-me-up that we all need after that very devastating blow. Uh, another person writes, it's a good show, five out of five stars. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's what I want. That's the kind of, uh, feedback we need. <laughs> all right, so, this user writes, long-time listener, first-time reviewer, five stars prompted because of that hot production on the Prison Chaplain episode. Nice. All right. It was good. It's uh, a good one. I put... Considerable time into it, yeah. And then uh, they also continue to write intro beat, coming back in, hyping me up, getting me ready to protect my friends. Nice. Yeah, I I Um, listened to that episode and I was like, uh, "Man, what podcast is this? Where can I sign up for this?" (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's really fun. Um, It's a, it was a cool exercise. Uh, I probably did that because all of my students are making more like documentary style podcasts, and I wanted to make one too just to show them that I could. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I did. And it's good. It was a fun It was a fun thing. It's definitely a different way of thinking about audio that I really like, actually. So maybe I'll do another one in the future next time I have a chance to do a cool interview with somebody.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we didn't make a podcast every single week, like maybe we would put more time into it, but
0: too bad. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: We got a five out of five uh, review out of it, though, so worth it.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think so. <laughs> So uh, you, too, can write a review of our podcast if you want to. You can just go on over to iTunes, go to rate this podcast, and then give us five out of five stars. Or give us one out of five stars, but probably don't. Probably just give us five out of five. <laughs> um, get, so get on get on that. We need more of these reviews. We've kind of got off the review reading track, and maybe we can get back on with some of your help.
1: That's right. Uh, maybe this next conversation will inspire you to give us a five out of five star review. Uh, so how's that for a segue? Uh, let's turn it on over to uh, Damian Costello to talk about Black Elk. All right, this week we are here with Damian Costello, author of the book Black Elk, Colonialism, and Lakota Catholicism from Orvis Books. Really thankful to have Damian with us today. Uh, make sure to, maybe before listening to this one, uh, go back and listen to an interview that we hosted that Damian did with Basil Braveheart. Uh, last week Um, that'll kind of help contextualize some of our conversation here Uh, the book deals with black elk who you will learn a lot more about in the next hour um, and we're gonna sort of see what it might look like to think of uh, indigeneity and colonialism and catholicism and uh, all those kind of things together but before we jump into that uh, let's do a little catching up so damien what have you been up to lately in the last week or so
2: well, I just got back Sunday from um, close to your territory, south of Grand Rapids. I was in South. Nice. We went up to in there, uh, took a class up to see some Polkagan, um historical sites uh, on this very topic: Catholicism and uh, Native American tradition. Uh, but I am mostly a stay-at-home dad, and the kids were sick when I got home, and so. That's been a little tough. Mom is away at a, a conference as well. So me and the kids.
1: Cool, yeah. That sounds uh, pretty wild. Um, this whole stay-at-home dad thing, I don't have any uh, contextualized experience to relate to, apart from uh, you know chasing my two cats um, while my wife is at work. But uh, yeah, uh, that sounds like a lot of work anyway. Glad you got to see Michigan. Um, Matt, what have you been up to? Uh,
0: just taking it easy over here, teaching classes grading papers that's that's about it nah not nah, i think crazy yeah what about you dean uh i've been
1: busy super busy writing a lot um trying to do trying to get things in order to do my comprehensive exams for my phd next week or next month um next week's a little too optimistic i think uh, so hopefully that'll go well um, I finished like a course proposal On Christianity and the left In the US and Canada Hoping to run that pretty soon So it's been like a lot of organization This past couple of weeks But all good things I think
0: Cool, sounds good
1: I have to yeah. say
2: One of the downsides of having a guest uh, Like me is that I tend to interrupt all the cool banter That you guys uh, have You know, Listening to your old episodes It's, it's quite a show sometimes
0: <laughs> that's okay i don't think you're interrupting what would, would hurt any of our banter i'm sure it's gonna be just fine <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah that's right uh yeah i don't think those uh five-star reviews are coming from the banter personally but who knows um <laughs> uh well let's get into why you're actually here damien uh <laughs> last week uh like we mentioned we hosted an interview with basil blackheart and he gave a lot of kind of interesting insights into uh, black elk and Lakota Catholicism, and it was really good to, to hear some of that. Um, is there anything just before we start off here that you want to highlight from that interview or follow up on maybe as a way to kind of set the stage for what we're about to talk about?
2: Well, I guess I'd like to reiterate what you said um, to the listeners. If if for some reason you only have an hour of your life to give to this topic, I'd say turn this off and, and go back and listen to that interview. Uh, Basil Braveheart He's really the spiritual heir of of Black Elk's spiritual legacy um, you know everything from his early childhood in his grandparents' cabin in the nineteen thirties where he he got his um Lakota spiritual base um his decades as a traditional spiritual leader you know he's he's a participant in the Catholic world, goes to mass mass every day um and he's he's a real theologian in terms of the way he's trying to bring together Lakota tradition. Christian theology and quantum physics. Um, it's hard for me to keep up with him sometimes. Um, you know, he's hes really a, a priceless voice when we think about something like Black Elk.
0: So, yeah, it's definitely a cool interview. Um, it's really interesting to hear it come from him, you know, kind of as like a source. It's, um, it is great that we that you are able to conduct that interview. It seems like it'll be something that's worth, worth something to the future of like the Code of Catholicism. Um, well, usually on the Magnificast, whenever we read a book or an article on the show, we always ask the author to give us a little bit of a, an elevator pitch about what the book is about. Uh, so could you tell us, um, what it is that you wanted to accomplish with, uh, your book and, um, maybe just a little bit about, and maybe just a little bit about who Black Elk is and like why he's important to you.
2: Uh, well, Nicholas Black Elk was a Lakota holy man. Um, he was made famous by the book Black Elk Speaks, um, You know, he was at a lot of the big events of Lakota and Native American history, you know, Battle of Little Bighorn. When he was about 12 years old, he finished off a couple soldiers. And then he was at Wounded Knee, um, fought in the aftermath there, Ghost Dancer, traveled to Europe with Buffalo Bill Cody. And as a young boy, the most important thing is he had this great vision. Um, He was in a coma for 12 days, but his spirit was it was brought up into the sky and he met um, all these different figures in the, in the Lakota religious world all these different spirits and he was commissioned to uh, save his people and to establish the sacred red tree uh, the sacred tree at the um, junction of the of the red road and the black road and so he spent his whole life trying to discern what that meant uh, how he was going to be an intercessor for his people um, now I discovered black elk. Pretty much like everybody up until a year or two ago, uh, before the canonization process started, I was an undergraduate, um, small school, Mount St. Mary's College in in Maryland. And I spent most of my time, um, when I should have been studying, pulling books off the the library shelf. And I was interested in indigenous studies. And I I found that book and and I was blown away by it, you know, um, for its view into uh, Native American culture um and that you know i think we all kind of circle around a few questions you know big questions when we're academics that we always sort of return to and, and for me the question was always about conquest um how does that happen why does that happen you know the sort of questions that jared diamond dealt with in guns germs and steel that came out after i was an undergraduate um, and You know, so as somebody who's a theologian, then the question is always, okay, well, how did Christians do this? You know, it makes sense if, um, you know, the Mongol Empire or something did this because, of course, they're bad pagans. um, But how did we good Christians do this? And so Black Elk Speaks really uh, encapsulated all these questions that I had as an undergraduate. Uh, But I didn't have any idea he was also Catholic until I brought the book into one of my theology classes sort of accidentally and the professor saw it and and he looked at me and he said, Hey, did you know that guy was Catholic? And of course I had no idea. Um I didn't know at the time um much about Native American culture and didn't really think that natives could be Christian as well. And so he said, Well, this is a really interesting um debate. Why don't you study this? You can do a senior project and write a paper about it. And so I did. Um fall of 97, I read everything there was out there about black elk at the time. And it was the the best educational experience I ever had um, in my life. And, you know, when I returned to grad school, I, I revisited it. And that's the basis of um, what became this book.
1: Yeah, it's really amazing. I think it's interesting to you to how you narrate that story of, um, you know, starting off with someone who kind of has internalized a lot of assumptions about what it means to be a native person or something like that, and uh, through Black Elk uh, having those things challenged, and that's something that comes through in your book as well. Um the, the figure of Black Elk challenges all kinds of, uh, of assumed narratives, not only about um, Indigenous people in the United States and about Christianity in general, but also about Black Elk himself. Uh, I think that's really fascinating. And in the first chapter, you frame the position of the book coming from a post post-colonialist, excuse me, uh, and a post-Western Christian uh, perspective. So those positions add some kind of interesting nuances to the project. Could you maybe introduce like what those words mean and how Black Elk uh, helps you think through those kinds of, uh, of issues?
2: Sure. But uh, before I do that, I have to say that my biggest fear in thinking about joining you guys in this podcast was... Uh, realizing man my um, academic my theoretical chops are just not at the level where your your guys uh, level is you know I think maybe they were back when I was in grad school Uh, but having moved on um, that seems like a very distant world but having said that um, post-colonial thought allowed me to open up a lot of space for black elk Um, you know The colonial world is really good at dividing things into hard binaries, you know, very much like all Western modern thought. So you have settlers and natives and one is sort of ultimately good and smart and has the right culture. And then the other side is everything that's bad. And, you know, that kind of flips at times. um, But that's how colonial thought tends to view the world. Um, uh, post-colonial thought tries to blur those distinctions and focus more on practices and, and the gray area. Now I should say, if you really want a, a full explanation of this, you should go back and listen to, uh, Michael Jimenez, um, his, Jimenez, his episode 46. know, I was listening to that. And if you go to about 21 and a half minutes, he will break it down, um, in a very sophisticated way. So, then regards in regards to post Western Christianity, um, I think it's a little less well known and probably more important for Black Elk. Um, part of the colonial legacy is that we still think of Christianity as being um, European, or even when it gets moved to other places, that it's still a European thing at its core. And you know, if you just look at the facts of it, um, most Christians today live in places that are not north america or europe you know africa and asian asia latin america and that trend is only expanding um but i think our conceptual framework really hasn't caught up to what that means when you know uh, post-western christian theorists uh, and i'm thinking of la uh he was very influential or um vincent donovan a very good book christianity rediscovered he just he has more of a narrative about this when Christianity goes to a new culture, um, it's not just a matter of translating some ideas, right? You know, we think of the biblical text or a list of dogmas maybe in a, in a Catholic sense, and they get translated, but a new culture is formed. Um, a new perspective on the faith is opened up. We, they see things that, that we have never seen, and there's a sort of backflow into the church. Um, you know, it's usually less individualistic less dualistic uh than than our tradition you know they haven't been arguing about Kant and and Descartes for the last few centuries and it'll probably emphasize different practices and oftentimes there are things that we are uncomfortable with or have sort of quote-unquote evolved out of like maybe healing practices or exorcism Um, and so in looking at Black Elk, that allowed me to look at his um catholic life in a new way Uh, a lot of commentators get sort of stuck and and i think you know if they're not theologians um it's hard for them to see this that in order for black elk to be a full participant you know participant in the catholic tradition it doesn't mean he's going to look exactly like what we imagine catholics to be which is often sort of modern north american catholics um, it's not a switch of worldviews, um, you know. Like they can't believe that he switched completely from a Lakota worldview to a Catholic worldview. That's impossible to do. Well, of course, that's impossible to do. Nobody does that. Um, what's happening is a new culture is being born, and part of investigating Black Elk is is trying to figure out. Okay, let's be respectful and honest about what this new culture is and um, understand that first. And so both of these. Sort of theoretical arms helped me to, I think, be fairer to um, native Christians in their own environment uh, and not impose what we often do. I mean, we, we still do this no matter how hard we try, uh, you know, our categories on them.
0: I think that's a really cool um, addition or uh, that's a really cool contribution that you can make uh, or that you have made to sort of post-colonial theory. And especially for Christians who are thinking through post-colonialism. And colonialism, um, I uh, I know that I've said this on the podcast before, and I'll say it again. Uh, like in my local church, I'm part of our like our mission team, and we have to figure out like you know what what does what does that look like for you know a local church who wants to give money to missionaries. Like, does that play off into all of the tropes of colonialism, or is there like a good way to do it and a bad way to do it? And the the first chapter or so of your book really helped me think through that in a little bit more of a dynamic way. So I find that pretty interesting. Um, introducing the idea that the the people who are colonized actually have agency is something that, you know, is like stupid, but completely a, a blind spot of my own. Like it's, it seems like it should be obvious that that's the case. But um, I think that sometimes in, in the discourse of colonialism, we do get kind of Blinded to that, and uh, so, anyways, the, the idea of agency was a really big deal for me in your book. So, um, I want to uh, I want you to unpack that uh, idea of agency just a little bit more. Uh, you talk about considering Black Elk not as sort of like a passive Lakota person, just accepting Christianity pushed on him, but uh, someone who has you know agency and power, and they can do something with this Christianity, um, and they can you know make their own decisions in their life, and they don't have to sort of remove them from their culture. Uh, so could you talk a little bit more about that? Like, what does it mean to think about agency in a context like this? Or or what does agency just in general mean for this post-colonial situation? You know, in the
2: first place, you know, I think it's the right instinct to uh, be in a place where agency is hard to see. Because these, you know, colonial practices, this huge apparatus, it's it's a powerful, um, hegemonic force and it's hard to see agency in the face of that. There are so many stories where it's difficult to see agency. Um, but having said that, when you, when you dig a little bit deeper, um, you find the ways in which people survive in forms that's not just outright resistance. You know, we, the romantic, the easy way to think about is the ways that people escape the system or, seemingly beat the system. And those are few and far be, between, of course. But there's a lot of things that people do in their daily life to negotiate these systems. You know, they use their agency. And so, particularly when we think about identity, um, so much of this system, the colonial system, um, is, is artificial. It's hard to underestimate that, the force that it has on shaping identity, you know, like residential schools, bad missionary work, um, salvage anthropology, uh, movements for cultural renewal, they all sort of um, box people in into the idea that the the only legitimate way to not uh, be a victim is to be traditional. And people still in that context have the ability to make choices and selectively adapt new practices um, that often uh, under the surface Sort of continue traditional concerns or practices in a new form. So you know, out west where I, I used to live, rodeo is a, is a really big thing um, on the various reservations out there. And on the surface, you look at it, you're like, oh, well, this is this is cowboy culture, right? What's more cowboy and old west than the rodeo? But when you start to think about what's going on, um, you can see how this was a way for traditional Native horse culture to survive in a new in a new venue in a new a new situation um, it's a place where um natives can interact with non-natives in relative equal on a, you know, an equal footing uh, where bridges can be built and it's it's a very vibrant culture in which natives invest in just like your average settler cowboy and so when you look at uh, religious practices or something like Christianity, you can see sort of the same thing going on. Are there also instances in which things are shoved down people's throats and um, there's not much choice involved? Of course. But there's also ways in which people take uh, practices that are new, that seem to be foreign, but inhabit them in a way to create a new future, you know, survival, but also, um a way for their traditional practices to be a part of their thriving in the present, in uh, the future.
1: Yeah, that uh, that ambiguity that you call attention to there between, um, you know, the, in, on the one hand, it's a sense of survival. And on the other hand, it's uh, it, it opens up different possibilities, potentialities. I think it's something that's really hard to like parse out and, and really important to call attention to as well. Um, maybe like one example that we could use to get into this a little bit is how you talk about uh, Jesuit missionaries in your book uh, historically. Um, and you sort of lay out a, an account of how they're somewhat different from other colonizing groups or interests like, you know, merchants or uh, the army, et cetera. Um, and you say that they're they're You admit that they're complicit in colonialism for sure. Um, but you say that there's also a way in which they're somewhat separate from it, or they find ways to resist it, uh, on their own terms, um, as Jesuits, uh, you, you use the term of them being in kind of like a third way. Um, and in our conversations about this book, uh, Matt and I's, uh, this is something that we like kind of struggled with a little bit, I guess, um, so you, know, you, you cite all the ways that Jesuits give a particular respect to the Lakota people by learning their language, for example, um, or trying to find, like, certain, I guess, like, cognates uh, in in their own worldview. Um, but do you think that, like, hmm, I guess, do you think it's really the case that the Jesuits are, in that sense, kind of separate from colonialism, or are they also, I guess, uh... Uh, more complicit maybe than you you might um, give them credit for uh, in your chapter like like regardless of how inculturated they were their end goal is still a certain kind of assimilation of uh, Lakota people into Christendom uh, in the American West uh, so yeah I guess uh, I'm curious to hear a little bit more of what you think of that and, and with that ambiguity like is Lakota Catholicism sort of like making the best of like uh, a, a bad situation with colonialism? Is there something more going on? Uh, how does that kind of history maybe help uh, illuminate some of that?
2: I feel like you, uh, you're you pulling your punch a little bit and, and that's okay. Um, <laughs> you, me, <laughs> I am for sure. <laughs> I d- If I look back, or I, and I do look back at this book, um, you know, it's been over 10 years and um, that's the part I struggle with the most as well. Um, you know, and I, and I think there's a, few reasons why I um, would, that I do look at it differently and would write this differently now. Um, you know, the the whole Indian residential school uh, question was really not on um, the average person's mind, right? And it's probably still isn't on the average person's mind. But, you know, there's a huge um, truth and reconciliation movement in Canada. I think it's much more prominent in the US, even though we're not in the same place. And even though I knew about residential schools, I don't think that I inhabited the space where I was able to take it, to feel it as palpably as I do now. Um, and I think, you know, I didn't have that experience living in a native community long term. Um, and that has really sort of helped me to understand these things in a different way. I'll get back to that later on. Uh, but I think w- probably the biggest thing that was going on as I look back was sort of this grad school tunnel vision that I had. Uh, you know, one of the, the greatest things I think about your conversations that you guys have is your autobiographical honesty. Um, and I can remember listening. I think it was, you know, I have it written down here somewhere. I don't know where it is, uh, but your episode on Jacques Deloux, oh, yeah, Christianity and anarchism, I believe it's, mm-hmm. or anarchism and Christianity. And, uh, you know, you, You talked about it, um, you know, you you brought up a lot of sort of problems that you now see with the work that you didn't necessarily necessarily see when you first picked it up. Um, And and I could be reading this, reading into this, but it sort of like worked you into a frenzy a bit, you know, got you on the board to the movement. Um, And for me, I think it was, you know, Harawas was sort of percolating around. When I was thinking about these questions, you know, this is the early 2000s, the Iraq war is going on. Everyone's sort of losing their mind. And um, Harawas is a very prominent voice in my education. And back then, I think I really believed, you know, his his claim that there really was a true, pure church out there, either to be found or created. And I was kind of looking at the Jesuits Looking for those remnants, maybe, you know, I don't think I would have said, oh, it was there, but looking through that lens, I think I heightened, um, you know, my portrayal of the Jesuits in a, in a positive way, in a way that I wouldn't do now. Um, so, you know, right now I think I'm, I'm in the, uh, Jose Miranda space. You know, you you guys talked about that work. and I don't know if I just happened to listen to those two episodes, um, back to back, but if I remember correctly, you know, you you gave him a lot more credit, uh, in nuancing things and being faithful to both, um, the communist tradition and the, the Catholic, the biblical tradition. And I'm really consciously trying to do that in my work as I go forward with black elk or, or with anything, um, evolving out of that, that, uh tunnel vision into a much more open space. So, you know, I would never now talk about the Jesuits being separate, uh, from colonialism. Um, you know, maybe I didn't quite say that, but I'm sure that, you know, the tone that you're describing is, is, is very accurate in, in the space that I inhabited. And I'm, I'm definitely much more sympathetic, uh, you know, and part of me Sometimes agrees with more radical critiques like Charlotte Black elk, um, who sees the church is really just an extension of greater colonial power, especially as time goes on you know I and mean, there's a real distinction here where the later Jesuits um, didn't do the types of things the early Jesuits did and more self consciously modeled themselves as colonial agents so you know having said that you know i don't I don't want to lose the the middle ground that the early Jesuits did um, inhabit. Um, You know, there's some great examples, you know, like the Lakota wouldn't refer to them as white men. They were this different category. And, you know, even today you can find people who may have major issues with the church but still talk very affectionately about various Jesuits or other missionaries um, that really – did live a middle ground. And even if they didn't understand their complicity with colonialism, did practical things in their life that were different than, than what the colonial apparatus wanted. Um, and then, you know, finally just, you know, it's having lived in that experience and and realizing how much more difficult it is to not only imagine what a heroic stance would be, um, But the difficulty of embodying that, what a radical and um, difficult place that is to to live in an anti-colonial way long-term. So giving, I guess, wanting to give them credit for that halfway, that that middle space that, even though didn't go all the way, is incredibly difficult to inhabit. And, you know, also thinking about um, John G. Neihart, the, the author of Black Elk Speaks, you know, the one who interviewed Black Elk and, and wrote Black Elk Speaks. You know, I'm pretty critical of him in the way he wrote Black Elk Speaks, the way he shaped the interviews uh, through his own lens. I be, as time goes on, I'm becoming much more appreciative of the work he did, you know, to assert himself, to, to go out to Pine Ridge, to find Black Elk to do the interviews. Um, it's still problematic, the end result, but I have great respect for, for what he was able to do, given the limitations of, of his, his location.
1: I really appreciate how you, uh, reflect on that, Damien. I mean, I think like you wrote this book a long time ago, so, uh, it's natural for anybody to kind of keep on developing and, and changing positions, et cetera. But I think it's actually a, a challenge to, um, To like critically investigate the ways in which uh, you know your scholarly assumptions continue to shape uh, the work that you've done. I was saying to Matt uh, when we were coming up with these questions, like um, I don't think I've ever read read anything that I wrote like ten years ago, and uh, I sort of shudder to think what I would find if I tried to. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, dealing with with issues like colonialism and that sort of thing, especially as a white scholar trying to make sense of this, um, I think it's. uh, I I guess I'm just uh, I'm happy to here are the kinds of uh, extra thoughts that you have about it. And I'm curious to see where the rest of it um, takes you. Uh, maybe we could, we could kind of talk a little more about some other um, items like this uh, in your book, not, not like problems per se, but just uh, ways that where you try to draw out this ambiguity and where we could kind of keep on thinking about it a little bit more together. Um, Matt, I know there's a passage that you wanted to pull out. So maybe I'll let you uh, introduce that bit.
0: Yeah, totally. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> So this isn't exactly the same question that Dean asked, but it has a similar sort of feel to it. And uh, I'm excited to hear what you have to say. So in chapter seven of your book, you do this really cool analysis um, about. Yeah, I mean, the the ways that uh, Christians or like the ways that people who are in indigenous situations like do something with Christianity. And I really love that. I really love uh, seeing the ways that they that that Christianity, like, you know, maybe in a a bad and colonial situation, opens up a space for them to do something that's um, a little bit revolutionary or uh, at least, you know, is counter to the hegemony. And that's a cool thing to see. Um, You pull out a few different examples. Uh, The one that really sticks out to me is Rastafari. That's a cool thing. Um, So uh, on that point in chapter seven of your book, you say this. I'll just kind of read it here. Given the strategy the West employed to reorder the world, I maintain that when colonized people, quote, discovered Christianity, they often used it to counter the West. So, um, right, you you use an analysis of Rastafari, but also of the Lakota Catholicism of Black Elk um, to, you know, talk about that, to talk about the ways that they ended up countering the West. Um, So your judgment in this book, I don't think is altogether wrong on that point the people of Jamaica and the, and the Dakotas did do something with Christianity that countered colonialism in some pretty interesting ways. And we, you know, see sort of the, the history of that here. Um, however, I'm wondering that, you know, that countering is, is never something that overcame Western hegemony, though. So is the countering that we see in these types of movements a difference that makes a difference? Is it a countering that um, really challenges hegemony or is it a countering that just like makes a space um, for them to sort of survive?
2: Man, I, I have to say, this is like the, the best conversation I've had about this and since I wrote the book, uh, and I really appreciate you guys having it with me. Um, it's probably the latter. You know, I think my language here is in part kind of a product of that grad school tunnel vision, you know, where we, you know, we we think we identify the monsters and we build them up and we think we can find a way to just sort of you know, slay them in some dramatic way. Um, You know, did the Rastafari and Lakota appropriation of of the gospel end Western hegemony? I mean, no, but nothing has. I I don't know ultimately what will. Yeah, Uh, communism didn't either, so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, I think these pockets of survival are significant. Um, I think, you know, they're they're pockets that, that did something meaningful for the people there, but they also produce these rich sort of cultural strands that spider web out into the world. Um, you know, and I think those, those spider webs, you know, sure. I think they're commodified and domesticated, um, whether it's, you know, black elk speaks, um, you know, say like Bob Marley, you know, that's sort of on that trajectory, uh, but I think it does considerable work in shaping people like me who find themselves interacting with them. You know, I, I don't know if I ultimately have any great answers, but I think I am different and the world is different because I encountered Black Elk Speaks and, and listened to Bob Marley. Like, and it shaped me to be attentive to these things, these um, issues and these histories in a way that I probably wouldn't have. If if um, those pockets did not survive and interact and produce these very interesting things. And, you know, in giving up the possibility of discovering some sort of ultimate way to bring down hegemony, I think this is still a meaningful um, difference that does make a difference. And a lot of times I'm like, well, I'm not sure exactly what that difference amounts to. Um, but a lot of the beauty that I'm able to see in the world comes out of those strands that have communicated, communicated across thousands of miles and decades and centuries.
0: Yeah, I think that's a pretty good read on the situation. Um, when I read those accounts from your book, I guess I, I thought of them as akin to, um, what we've talked about on this show as like the diggers or Thomas Munzer, right? They're, they're real Christian movements that, um, I mean, are, you know, definitely Christian, first of all, but also that do something in the face of hegemony that's pretty good. Right. And that they does that that they don't bring down Western hegemony is, you know, not surprising because, like, you know, we just said nothing did not even communism. So there you go. But I think they are helpful moments of recall. That's how I read them, at least. is, is just like one more thing in that in that long list of sort of like Christian radicalism that we can pull from.
1: Yeah, uh, I think that's also a great um, way for us to maybe talk a little bit more about Black Elk specifically and um, some more uh, of what you've kind of been working with, Damien, and, and kind of thinking through uh, who Black Elk is and, and what his life means. Um, so uh, you do a lot of uh, work in your book to think through moments in Black Elk's life, uh, whether it's like a, a major kind of vision that you mentioned at the, at the top of this podcast Um, or, you know, uh, his own kind of historical moves and and shifts and changes. Um, And I think that's really, uh, at least for me, that was like the most exciting um, parts of the book is like the way that you kind of lay out how Black Elk is like taking this material and like using some of it, uh, not using other parts of it, combining it with other things. Um, Like it's a really kind of creative act and attempt to be, to be faithful to a lot of different parts of his life. Um, and that's like a really inspiring and and challenging thing to do. It's like, it's something that everyone has to do. Uh, not just like indigenous people, obviously. Um, and the way that you, that you trace how black elk does that is just uh, really valuable. So I guess, uh, you know, you, you, you alluded earlier, you know, you've spent some time, um, living in indigenous communities and, and thinking a lot more about this. And I wonder, you know, does that experience, um, how has that experience, I guess, made you think a little more about Black Elk's life and, uh, enter into some of that space and, and understand it a little bit differently. You know, you, you talk a lot about Black Elk's vision and, and that's probably the thing that I'm, uh, most curious about, uh, but yeah, anything that kind of comes to mind in light of that experience of, of having dug into that uh, lived experience a little more.
2: Well, one of the funny things about this, you know, I, I wrote the the Black Alk book over 10 years ago, and it seemed like for a long time that that was, you know, firmly a part of my past that it would I wouldn't really ever revisit it. And it was sort of accidental. Uh, my wife, she's a doctor, and when she got done... With residency, she said she wanted to go out west and work on a reservation, and I was not interested in that. I was ready to come home. Um, We're both from Vermont, and I was ready to start settling down. Um, I wanted our family to be from here, and it was her turn to pick, so we ended up uh, on the Navajo reservation in a pretty remote place and very far from any tenure-track possibilities, and our kids were born out there and I stayed home, home with them. And so what, the only thing I really had to do, which was also providential and perfect for this material is to just go into the community and be a part of it as much as possible and go to ceremony. So for about five years, that's what I did. Uh, stayed at home with the kids and then went to ceremony, all the different traditions that are there, uh, which is the peyote religion, then the traditional Navajo ceremony. And there was also Lakota Sundance out there. And also I was active in, in the local Catholic parish. Um, and so that gave me, um, sort of the flip side to all this work I had done before. So here I was, I was doing this thought experiment using, um, You know western academic practices and of course you know i am looking at post-colonialism (laughs) post-western christianity but this is a western practice looking at this question how does black elk be uh faithful native faithful to his own traditions and um faithful catholic and i found myself doing the opposite um Jumping in as a a Catholic, I'm of Catholic background, and embracing as much of indigenous tradition as I can, and just seeing what happens, because it's messy. It doesn't all just sort of fall together. You have to discern. Some things don't really go together, Um, and it's hard to just keep this all in in one place. So I would say that the the biggest insight um, was this shift from a theoretical perspective to uh, a native perspective of of the spirits and of ceremony. Um, Now, we we imagine Black Elk, what he was going through, and we have the benefit of all these hindsight and seeing all these big, huge global systems and analyzing them, and that's true, and and Black Elk could see some of those things, but his primary uh, mode of encountering Christianity was the spirits and ceremony. Um, in, In the ghost dance, the last major... Uh, vision of his life, he had a vision of Christ. And in a native tradition, particularly in Lakota tradition, when a spirit uh, manifests itself to you, it does so uh, to give you a gift and to issue issue a call. I mean, you can see echoes of this, of course, in the the Bible as well. Um, But when you see the spirit, you also become the spirit, and you do things in the manner of the spirit. So if an eagle visits you, You are called to heal in the way of an eagle, and you are that eagle for the rest of your life. And uh, you have to enact that and and reciprocate that call in ceremony. That's a requirement. And so just like with this great vision, Black Elk, um, he was given a call. He put it off for almost a decade until he finally gave in, uh, told his elders, and he went to ceremony and became a healer. And that's, you know, if you look at his biography and how he interacted with this uh, vision of Christ, he put it off. Um, You can very much read his baptism as that, you know, a native ceremony in which he embraces a call to use the power um, given to him by the spirit. Now, um, Christ was seen in the ghost dance and then also the, the, the Catholic world and other Christian traditions. They translated His name, uh, Wanikia, he who makes live. That the defining characteristic, the defining power of Christ was this ability to renew the world. And so that was the gift that was given to Black Elk. And that's what he embraced, I think, um, in his Catholic life. And not at the expense of his previous call, but in continuity with his previous call. So anyway, that is something that I never could have seen without participating in this, and I think is really the fundamental perspective for measuring the sincerity of Black Elk's Christian life. Um, because there's one thing you do not do in a Native context, or you know, there's lots of things, but you don't mess with the, the spirit world. You don't fool around with ceremony. That's not something you lie about. Ceremony is the foundation of, of Native life, and if there's one thing you respect, it's that.
0: That's cool. That's great to hear more about how that, you know, really formative experience of actually living in a native community helped you rethink some of this um, and helped you sort of shed some new light on black oak. Um, well, our, our time is is quickly coming up to an hour and I don't um, like that at all. I don't like how time is working right now. I wish it'd slow down a little bit, <laughs> um, Same here. but uh, yeah. Something I would like to hear you talk about, uh, something I'm really interested in um, for a lot of reasons is the cause for Black Elk's canonization. Um, Something that uh, Basil Braveheart talked a bit about last week and um, something I'd love to hear your take on as well. So um, what, what does that case look like so far? Um, What do you think like formally recognizing Black Elk as a saint would mean for the Catholic church, especially in the United States? Uh,
2: So I won't, go into the detail because you know listeners can go and find that pretty easily but you can just say that it's about halfway done and um all the signs that i see are very positive uh and i'm very surprised by that you know i if you had asked me this a couple years ago i would have said this has no chance because there are going to be people um you know a segment of the church that would say no way this guy is too pagan because um, he was very involved in revitalizing Lakota tradition after his um, baptism in Catholic life. And I, w- I thought that people would find that threatening. And I really haven't heard any voices. There's been a number of people who I would expect to say something like that who have not have been very uh, positive and affirming of it. And some even saying things that I would have been hesitant to, hesitant to say for fear of be- being perceived as too radical – or outside of the legitimate conversation about, um, you know, sainthood. Um, I think it would be an important affirmation of, of native Catholics who are doing, you know, what black elk did, which is participating in two worlds, uh, very sincerely. And they've never been recognized in that way. You know, St. Kateri, other native saints very clearly, Uh, had to step outside of their religious practices. And Black Elk would be the first one who still inhabited religious practices, but in a faithful way to uh, the overall gospel message, I think. Um, And I think it's a really historic moment for indigenous Christianity in general. You know, Christians tend to look at natives as a justice issue, right? So, oh, wow, yep, we did some really bad things natives are suffering. We've got to fix that. You know, that's, that's true. Um, Or they kind of interact with indigenous tradition as an alternative to Christian faith. Like they, they come across the, the history. Wow. How did this happen? Oh, it might be Christianity. Well, they have some cool traditions. Maybe that is something better. I think this is really a first, the first time where I'm encountering a significant number of, of Christians who are realizing that indigenous traditions, spiritual traditions um, can offer something to their faith. That's give them something that's missing and help them to step outside of a lot of the problematic categories of, of Western Christianity. And you know, I wanna give a, just a quick shout out to a group um, that has been doing this work for a while Nates uh, used to stand for North American Institute for Indigenous Theological Studies. Uh, it's a group of native Christians who, for about 15 years have been trying to th- think this out. Okay, what does it mean to be committed Christians, but thoroughly inhabit an indigenous world? There's a lot of insights that come out of that. And um, I think that now there are spaces in which average people are beginning to to explore that possibility.
1: Yeah, it's really, I think, uh, an amazing thing as well. Uh, like to try to imagine what it would mean to, uh, recognize someone like black elk as a saint formerly in the Catholic church would just have to, um, cause people to reevaluate somewhat. Obviously it wouldn't decolonize the church in the United States or Canada by any stretch, but, uh, but it would create some problems I would think, uh, like, like good, important problems. Um, You know, it would would hopefully make uh, some Catholics at least um, sort of question the way in which uh, Catholicism is tied to white supremacy and settler colonialism uh, so often in the United States. I guess, uh, there's so much I would love to hear more about. I mean, we spent so much time kind of talking a little bit about your own, uh, your own study. And, uh, I want to encourage people, despite the, you know, things you might change now anyway, to, to look at it, uh, especially for all the the really fascinating ways that you do account for Black Elk and his Catholicism. you draw from so many, um, you know, diary entries and, and letters and reflections by his family. And I think that's all extremely useful. Um, and I wonder, uh, maybe as we close here, um, Maybe you could talk a bit about some of those relationships that you have and how they've uh, opened up your work on Black Elk, and maybe specifically uh, Basil, Braveheart. We we opened the episode talking... A little bit about that um but you know it's it's clear that he's been a, a formative influence on you and uh as you're as you're trying to work this out he's he's clearly been significant in your own uh, pursuits too so you know what has that relationship uh, opened up for you thinking through uh, Lakota Catholicism and uh, uh I guess what what do you think um hmm, how can I phrase this like how do you think that those kinds of relationships will continue to inform your work I guess
2: well, I should say, um, first of all, like, on a personal level, uh, he's, he's one of the most genuine, centered people that I know. And he's also doing some of the most interesting theological work of anybody I've, I've encountered, you know, the kind of world he's trying to, to bring together. And he's integrated the Lakota and Catholic ways in a deeper way than anybody else that I've encountered. Um, and for me, um, you know, I think as academics, we drift towards inhabiting the tools we use rather than the content we're thinking about, you know, like getting wrapped up in our theory so much that we kind of lose the center and Braveheart, he just, he continually opens up a much deeper spiritual realm and I'm better off spiritually, I think because of his willingness to share his own journey. Uh, With regard to Black Elk, you know I 'm so much more capable of appreciating how profoundly rooted he was in Lakota tradition. Um, you know it's a kind of thing you can be aware of on an intellectual level, but when you're looking for combat- compatibility with a different tradition like Catholicism, it's easy to just see the Lakota part as a cognate or you know only important in as much as it reflects what's going on in the Catholic world and the ongoing conversation with him has helped me to appreciate, you know, almost the reverse, that that there is this deep ocean of Lakota spirituality that, um, you know, is, is not exhausted by whatever commonalities you find in Catholicism, and that should wash back over the church and provide new resources um, for renewal. And... I think he's he's helped me think about the way I do theology. Um, you know, when we get it wrapped up in debates like Black Elk's identity, we get so wrapped up in the outcome, um, in working out our own hangups. You know, you sort of unconsciously try and assert a type of ownership over the material. You know, you you kind of whether you know it or not, drift into like a caricature of. Uh, You know, some sports radio guy firing off hot takes and taking down the universe. And that's not what this is about. Um, I've been trying to work my way out of that for a while. And talking to Braveheart has really helped shatter that for me, I think. And realize that Nicholas Black Elk is a living presence rooted first and foremost in in the Lakota people. And it's not about winning arguments. um, But being about... You know, able to collaborate with a very diverse group of people with different foci, you know, with different interests in in black elk, but to be collabor- collaborators in search of truth for the common good. Um, and I think that's what black elk was known for in his life. He was a genuine bridge builder and whose unquestionable holiness, you know, it permeated his his interactions with everyone. Um, so, just trying to be a better ambassador of, of his legacy and you know, I guess in closing um, i 'd also add that that you and your guests you know are important mentors for me in that process as well. Being a part of your community that you created and sustained um, has really shaped me in a positive way to inhabit this theological study in a good way and not just know trying to have success in it but to to really um be a virtuous um person within that so thank you for for sharing that with me
1: well it's very kind of you to say yeah uh sometimes we feel like we're like podcasting into the void so this was a good encouraging note well, thanks so much, Damian, for joining us. I mean, it's just been a pleasure to learn a little bit more. Uh, I read Black Elk Speaks in like high school and uh, have not thought about it since then. So this is a, a real, a really helpful thing to kind of think through. Uh, yeah, thanks so much again. And the book is called Black Elk Colonialism and Lakota Catholicism from Orbis. Um, really thankful uh, for your research and looking forward to seeing uh, what's on the horizon for you.
2: Well, thanks again for taking a chance on me um, in this topic, which, you know, I guess there's some some leftist politics involved, but um, I think you really expanded your definition to include me, and I'm really appreciative of that, and uh, to be able to interact with you as well.
0: Thanks for listening to Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can go uh, give us an iTunes review. You got to do it it's mandatory now. Uh, you can also support us on Patreon. We really appreciate that. Um, if you responded to our Patreon poll a while back about those, uh, enamel pins, uh, guess what? Your pin's on its way. It's in the mail. Um, so keep a lookout for it. It'll probably be there in a while. Cause the mail is slow. Put it on uh, your,
1: your, cool messenger bag or your punk jackets and send us a picture.
0: Oh, definitely send us a picture of those punk jackets. I love that. <laughs> uh, cool uh also you should check out the other two podcast networks that we're on because they're full of great shows about very similar topics we're on theology corner and we're also on critical mediations both of those networks have lots of cool stuff on them go and check them out uh for people who really know how to read the bible and talk about god but not <laughs> us <laughs> um our music uh <clears throat> sorry our intro music is by Amaria armstrong our outro music is by the Illogical spoon uh see you next week